3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR 855 AM, and it is just past 7 in the morning. Good morning, Rosie, Carly, and Malika. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. What a chorus. <laughs> yeah, this is very exciting. Um, all four of us together, and now uh, nobody to take a picture of us. We've been trying to get a picture of all four of us together for so long, and now that we're all here together, there's nobody to take a photo. I mean, have you ever heard of a selfie? That's my question. <laughs> I mean, I just want our official photo to not be a selfie, you Fair know, enough. you know, mm. um, although I feel like, um, you know, the little photoshopped one with with Malika photoshopped in the background <laughs> is great. It's a shame that nobody gets to see that. But imagine it. Imagine the three of us sitting in the studio and Malika photoshopped in the background. Anyway, um, we hope that people are doing as well as possible during this extended lockdown. I know it, it's a bummer. It's a real bummer to have to go through this process again mm-hmm. um, from all of the stuff that we and other breakfast shows have been covering. Um, you know, it, it is ridiculous that we find ourselves in a situation where the country's borders have been locked down for ages and the vaccination rollout has been so ineffective that... Um, we find ourselves in a position where New South Wales is now rec- um, recording still um, cases in the three figures. Um, but, yeah, make sure that you stay safe. Check in wherever you're going. Um, get tested if you need to sanitize and um, keep checking the Victorian Government Department of Health uh, for places that might have been exposure sites and for any changes to the restrictions. Um, so what have we got on for today's show? Yeah, so it's a big show, as always. So the first thing we've got up is we're going to play a short excerpt of episode four of Black Gold, a series produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy by Kerry Lee Harding and assistant producer Corey Green. Um, And the episode that we're going to listen to is presented by Viv Malo and celebrates the life of broadcaster Lisa Belair. Um, And yeah, the th- Thursday breakfast team have been doing some digging in the archives and listening to old 3CR programming, and so we're, it's not a, it's not a new show, but we're bringing it to you because we think it's really worth listening to. Um, and then next up, uh, then we speak with Lloyd Williams, National Secretary of the Health Services Union, about the campaign to increase the pay of aged care workers by 25 percent. After that, we're going to be joined by Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and award-winning writer who has a focus on disability and social issues. And Elle is joining us to talk about the Senate inquiry into the disability support pension and also looking at uh, the Department of Social Services inquiry, uh, or sorry, consultation process into the disability uh, support pension impairment tables. And then we're going to be speaking to Kate Kelly, a journalist currently working at the New Daily. Kate joins us to discuss the pay and conditions of fruit pickers and the application by the Australian Workers' Union to the Fair Work Commission for a rise in the award wages for farm workers. Kate Kelly, long-time friend of the show. Yeah, you may remember Kate Kelly from news headlines for, from last year and the year before that and 
yeah, yeah, an absolute legend. Yeah, and I've written headlines this morning, and I'm just like too shame now to read them <laughs> out because Kate's were just so good. <laughs> I hope by eight fifteen, Kate's voice is still like morning voicey because I loved. She always would roll up straight out of bed onto the phone with us, and it was. Great. Yeah, and none of the li- listeners like could see, but she always rolled into the studio wearing a full Adidas tracksuit. <laughs> True, that's very important. Um, but Carly, you've got some news headlines for us. Yes, alright. So news headlines for the 22nd of July. The following news headlines refer to an Aboriginal person who has passed away. Gordon Copeland, 22, has been missing since the early hours of Saturday 10 July. Police issued a statement on Tuesday 13th of July saying officers had seen a black hatchback speeding on the Newell Highway in Moree that Saturday and later found the car bogged near a bridge on the Carnarvon Highway. Officers attempted to speak with the man, however he allegedly ran from the police and was seen entering the Guida River. A search by emergency services has failed to locate Mr Copeland, and New South Wales Police issued a statement saying the matter is the subject of critical incident investigation, and there will be no further comment. Mr Copeland's family are still seeking answers. Mr Copeland's grandmother, Stella Fernando, told The Guardian, We're still looking for him. We don't know where he is, but we haven't got any assistance from police. Ms Fernando also said, Now he's missing, and they were the last people to see him. We want answers and we want our boy back. That's all we want. Services Australia on Wednesday uh, said that it had resolved an online issue that had caused problems for people trying to link their MyGov and Centrelink account. But the agency admitted that 71,000 claims received on Tuesday alone continued to cause service delays, even as wait times were being reducted. People who have lost more than 20 hours of work per week because of a lockdown are eligible for $600 per week under the Commonwealth COVID Disaster Plan Scheme. Anyone who has lost between 8 and 20 hours per week is entitled to $375. An estimated 1 million people across Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide who are already receiving existing income supports, including job seeker, youth allowance, um, have been barred from the payments with the government so far rejecting calls to expand the eligibility. Brisbane has been announced as the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games host city. This decision was confirmed last night after a meeting of International Olympic Committee delegates in Tokyo. The Brisbane bid predicts an operating budget of $4.5 billion and the IOC is set to provide $2.5 billion in funding leaving the rest to be raised from ticket sales and sponsorship. Up to 14,000 athletes will be accommodated in the Brisbane Village in the inner northeastern suburb of Albion. The Village project has been described as Queensland's largest waterfront urban renewal program. And that's all that I have for news headlines on the 22nd of July. Well, I think uh, that kind of infrastructural development. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things to be said about infrastructure associated with the Olympics, but it sure does beat the building of new prisons. So, I mean, that's that was all my comment. Um, there was actually also a really good article in the conversation that I read this morning, though, and you know, it talked about some of the previous games in um, Rio de Janeiro in 2016. Mm. Um, and then also even, you know, um, more of the affluent countries hosting games like the London Olympics. But in Rio, there were so many communities that were displaced and are still displaced from a lot of the infrastructure that 
was put up for the 2016 games. And also in that article, it talks about how, you know, um, and I'm sure Brisbane did this as well in their application for trying to get the Olympic Games to the city. They, you know, talk about how it's going to encourage tourism um, and a lot of, you know, it's going to spike up the economy. But really what happens is that um, new zoning laws are created and the Olympic Village is just its little bubble. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people actually don't. You know, even like families of um, people who and athletes who are participating don't really go outside of that bubble and see the city and engage with, you know, people. Mm. I was just imagining when you said, you know, um, Queensland's premier like infrastructure project. Imagine if that was public housing, like if their premier infrastructure project was actually building housing for people who need it. Yeah, I mean, like it is this really, I don't know, this this sort of attempt to market oneself as a global city, um, which I think we really need to keep an eye on because, you know, it, it's 2032 that this is slated for. That's in, what, 12 years. So these planning processes and zoning and um, moving people out of the area and engaging in this massive infrastructural development is something to keep an eye on, you know, who's who's going to be impacted by this. And, um We'd be keen to talk to you if you know any more about this. You can always contact us at at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram. Yeah, this is really surprising because it comes after a massive economic failure um, for the Commonwealth Games uh, just a couple of years ago when I was living up in Minjun and the Games were happening um, on the Gold Coast. And it was really funny because the government had told everybody that, um, you know, it was going to be really busy and not to use the highway between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And yeah, the Games were just such a flunk. Like they didn't sell half of the tickets to half of the events and... Yeah, there was just um, no traffic going between Brisbane and the Gold Coast and eventually they were trying to like give out tickets so that there would be actually like much more economic influx into <laughs> the Gold Coast. Um, but yeah, a lot of, I think even there was a class action or maybe uh, multiple class actions where a lot of the business owners said like, you know, the government um, and the city council were promising that we would be getting some um, tourism, but we got nothing. Yikes. I mean, what else can you say? We'll end it there then. (laughs) Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And now we're going to play a new one from Barker. This one is King Brown. King Brown Well if I'm so toxic Why you ringing now You think you're a man This is my house I'm sorry Where the fuck Is my crown now I'm back I just only want my land back To give it He ain't fucking with my mental Cause I'm independent When I left him He said go ahead you regret it I ain't regret you Cause look at where Sissy's heading Putting my heart You don't speak my language I got signed up Cause Sissy is so hard to manage I got a back I bad stamp Sleep and leave damage Got 
a fan bitch But only standard She demanding our respect You man lined up eternally Demanding for a check Coming for a wooden come free I'm coming for a check I'm so sorry but it's time Not rain down on that bitch Now I ain't sorry I ask Maury who the baby daddy me Tears pouring sorry baby You can't baby mama me And I'm sitting back here yawning Cause I'm living drama free And they keep running back to me Cause Bach is a base Can you track there was King Brown by Barker. And up now we are going to hear that excerpt of episode four of Black Gold, a series produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri land in Fitzroy by Kerry Lee Harding and assistant producer Corey Green. The episode is presented by, by Viv Malo and celebrates the life of broadcaster Lisa Belair. And um, just a warning for listeners, this episode um, does contain discussions of sexual abuse. Um, we would also like to advise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that the program contains the voices of people who have passed away. And if this episode brings up anything um, that you need to talk about, there is always Lifeline, and you can call Lifeline on 131114. And in Victoria, you can also call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line on 1800 806 292. It's an after-hours service that is available from 5 till 9. But now, let's hear Black Gold. And welcome to Black Gold, a five-part series that digs deep through the 3CR archive to present Black Gold. My name's Kerry Lee Harding, and I'm the producer of the series. Each episode was created 
right here in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri land in Fitzroy, Melbourne, together with assistant producer Corey Green. Just a warning to all our listeners, you will hear voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have passed. And now, episode four of the Black Gold series. We celebrate the life of Lisa Belair with presenter Viv Malo. Hi, I'm Viv Malo, host of the Black Block radio show on 3CR. Coming up in this program, you'll hear archival interviews with the late 3CR broadcaster, Sister Lisa Belair. First up, you'll hear some poetry reading, followed by audio of an interview with Lisa that was featured on the 3CR community radio program, Women on the Line, with host Ruth Barney. Lucky country, and this is by Dennis Fisher, Den the Fish. Who owns this country? Where do they come from? Are they Australians? Are they Poms? What do they bring here? What do they speak? Do they speak English? Do they speak Greek? They bring, bring trouble. They bring guns. Shoot you dead. You're nothing but a bum. They say you're no hoper. You're no good. You're just nothing. You're just a boom. Where can we go? Where can we stay? Stand up and fight. Kneel down and pray. We have to do something. We have to together. We can't do it alone. We can make it better. So come on, you people. Let's come as one. Bring your family, children, dad and mum. Bring all your friends. Bring all your relations. This is what we call reconciliation. And it's Den the Fish. Just because, you know, you were adopted and fostered and you were brought up by white people and, you know, you might have gone to private school, you might have even had a pony. These are some of the stereotypes. And you might even learn to ski. That's another stereotype. Destiny says blacks don't ski. Okay, I put my hand up, but I was adopted, you know, and I'm starting to feel ashamed about that. But there's still that pain that, that you, you go through. I mean, nothing that all these material things cannot make up for the, the loss of not being brought up with your family. And when I met up with my, you know, some more of my relations, like I'm, yeah, I've, got, I've got hundreds of relations, but I've got family right around Australia too. That's white family and that's my Indigenous family because there's some, you know, white people that look out for me, for me too. Uh, I just cried. I just couldn't deal with it. I just looked, looked around, you know, all this, all this family, and I just for that split second, I know I shouldn't have, but I couldn't help it. I just kept thinking, I missed out on this. Lisa Belair is one of the stolen generations of Aboriginal children, and today on Women on the Line, she tells her story. Hello, I'm Ruth Barney. Lisa was one of the contributors to Breaking Through, Women, Work and Careers, edited by Jocelyn Scott. In Breaking Through, Lisa writes, Since the invasion, one in six Aboriginal children has been removed from their natural family. I was one of those victims. Because of the support and love of some close friends who are more like family, I can now call myself a survivor. Adopted as a baby by a white family in 1961, Lisa grew up not knowing that she was Aboriginal. Later, on the pretext of getting a better education, she was sent to boarding school. The real reason, says Lisa, is that she was being sexually abused by her adoptive father. 
Incredibly, Lisa has overcome these odds to speak out about and work for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia. As a teenager, Lisa says she was inspired by then-Senator Susan Ryan and her outspokenness on women, Aboriginals and education. She says, I told myself if I stuck at school, attended university, I would be able to work for Susan Ryan in Canberra. Today, Lisa works as the Aboriginal Liaison Officer at Melbourne University and broadcasts on 3CR and 3LO in Melbourne. She's been active in Aboriginal theatre and education and did a stint as a counsellor for Collingwood Council. This is Lisa's story. My mum came down from the north coast of New South Wales, oh, probably 1960, round about then, came down to Melbourne, um, to Carlton. Actually, she had a job at the uh, Postmaster General, uh, PMG as it used to be called, the old uh, yeah, post office, uh, which was also very unusual for a Koori woman, well, a Koori person to actually have a, a government job back in those days and she met my, my dad, I mean the story's a bit hazy there and at the time uh, because she worked I was in Berry Street Babies Home East, East Melbourne and uh, I guess some of the, the listeners would be aware then, but, you know, back in the 1960s could even be, be before then uh, you actually paid to have your child minded in Berry Street as opposed to its role now but in addition to the payment, you signed a document which said that if payment fell in arrears by four weeks, then automatically you became a ward of the state. Now, what happened? My mum um, got really sick. She went home to Lismore in New South Wales. And again, you know, we've got to look at the big picture. And during the 1960s, like I was born in 1961, but preceding that, where um, the, the federal government and the state government had, a, had a, an official policy of, of assimilation, okay? Assimilation which spelt out uh, in, in quite detail uh, that Aboriginal people were to become Australian citizens. Here we are talking about assimilation, and we didn't even receive citizenship till 1967. I guess there's a bit of irony in there. So that uh, you had government instrumentalities, for example, for, for the police that would go into to Aboriginal people's homes and, and take children. You had the social work, workers who played an active role. And you also had things uh, like with, with my circumstances, how my mum got, got sick. She went home and when she was in hospital, of course, she, she didn't receive medical care with everybody else because she was a Koori. So she was treated uh, in the basement of the hospital and uh, you know I don't know the type of care that she she, she received uh, she wrote a will saying I was to go to my grandmother and she died but before she died a letter got sent to her saying well this, this will isn't recognised because it wasn't signed by a justice of the peace uh, so you know and, and in order for me to go home uh, they need we need two airfares and adequate winter clothing so that if, you know, my grandmother who was raising eight other children had money for two airfares, then there was adequate uh, winter clothing. And, you know, good question, Ruth, what does adequate winter clothing mean? So it's sort of like, uh, I look at the big picture, it's important to do that in order to, 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 to try and make sense of what's gone on in this country. And years ago, like, I couldn't even... I couldn't even talk about what we're talking about. Like, I, 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 I do cry. Like, sometimes I, 
I'll, I'll, I'll be in my room or I'll be walking around the streets because I still don't drive it and have my have my Ray-Bans on. And you just think about things. You don't necessarily think about you. The only time that I really consciously sort of think about, you know, because you can't be thinking, well, gosh, what, what, what if we didn't have assimilation? You know, what if, what if white people didn't invade our country? You know, what if this was a, a, a sexist, free, racist, free society? You know, what if, I mean, all I know is what, what I've gone through. All I know is how I've reacted to that, how angry that, that I have been in, in, in my life when I was younger. I didn't do things like slashed myself I didn't do things like some queries would do and, and that's you know put acid on their skin to make themselves white or they'd get stilo wool and scrub their skin you know this is all this is all stuff that, that's happened to queries to Aboriginal people to Torres Strait Islanders that have been you know taken away fostered adopted put in orphanages was all supposed to make us good citizens of of this country, you know, um, you know, one 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 nation, and not everyone can 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 speak out on 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 these issues, and it's very painful for me. But it's something that I have an obligation to Australian society, you know, to at least say to people out there, look, please listen, please try and understand. It's no good saying I wasn't here in 1788, but look around what's gone on in, in more recent history. Look what's gone, gone on, you know, in the 1930s, the 1950s, the 1960s, and we're here in the 1990s. I think everyone wants to be proud of this country, but in order to be, to be proud of, of whatever it means to be Australian, we've got to acknowledge what's gone on to the Indigenous community in this country. Well, like you say, you, like so many other Aboriginal children, were taken away from your family and actually adopted out to a white family. Yeah, and the thing with me, I, I was um, told that I was Polynesian, and so when I used to experience a lot of the racism at school, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, it'd be good to be like an outsider and say, well, that's a fascinating experience that, you know, Case LB went through. Um, you know, she was Kuri, but she was brought up that she was Polynesian. And, and, and what effect did that have on her psyche and her personal development? You know, oh, I can't stand that sort of approach. And I had to go through, like, I mean, when people would call me things like Abbo, Boon, Coon, when I'd get bashed up in the schoolyard for being black, like, I used to think, well, I'm Polynesian. Or I was, I was told that I was Scottish. Well, you know, my adoptive parents, my adoptive father was Scottish and my adoptive mother was actually born in Waterford in Ireland. And uh, then there was me and I had an adoptive brother too, which doesn't get mentioned in the story, so this is, you know, for you. And he was... He was white, white Australian, and, and four years older than me, and I'd like to be in contact with him, but I've got to do some do some research there. So it wasn't until later on in life that I officially found out that I wasn't Polynesian. So I I used to get given books and told that you know my grandmother was a Polynesian princess and get books on Hawaii. And at one stage, um, my adoptive parents were going to move to New Zealand because they said, well, you know, you're you're Polynesian, and so that means you know Maori. You Did know. they actually know? that you were a Koori? Well, again, you know, I mean, so people say that I'm too kind and I'm too generous. That's something that I, I, I always want to maintain regardless of 
wherever I end up. And I'm sure I've got enough aunties and uncles and cousins and friends and people like you that'll keep me on the track, you know, and just sort of say, look, Blair, remember who you are. That, when I got my file from Community Services, that was in 1986, that's Community Services of Victoria, um, when Destiny, uh, uh, Destiny Deacon, that is, you know, you know, we had discussions about, look, you've got to know who you are. And I mean, I knew that, but I was that scared because one of the things is I had, I had prejudices. I was racist, and I'll admit that, you know. So when I mix with, say, white people and they... They, they feel uncomfortable about, you know, racism and, you know, how can I understand Aboriginal people? Well, you know, how, how can they ever understand an Indigenous person having racism towards other Indigenous people? Now, I know about internalised uh, oppression and internalised racism now. I mean, I, and, and going to America really helped me understand what that, that meant. But prior to that knowledge, I had, I had to work through so much... Um, anger, I had to work through my fears, because all I knew about Akuri people in this country was what I read in the newspapers, what I saw on television, what I heard on the radio, if there was anything on, 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 on the radio. And predominantly, it, you know, it tended to be either a success story, and usually a sporting success story, uh, of course I'm not saying anything against our finer athletes. Uh, who I admire, many of them, or it would be the the Aboriginal problem, and there, you know, and there was me. I didn't mix with any any people that that everyone that I mixed with was was white. You know, I couldn't go home and talk about racism. I couldn't go home. Like I can't explain this. All I know is that when I used to get bashed up because of people thinking that I was different, you know, and an Aboriginal person, I couldn't go home to my adopted parent. I don't know why I couldn't go home and say, hey, I got bashed up because someone called me black, I protected myself, and so I didn't see myself as, 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 as black. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and just then you heard part of episode four of Black Gold, a series produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio by Kerry Lee Harding and assistant producer Corey Green. And the episode was presented by Viv Malo and celebra- celebrated the life of broadcaster Lisa Belair. And if you want to check out the rest of that episode, you can go to 3cr.org.au and just search in the search bar for Black Gold. The whole series is there. And, you know, during this lockdown, there's plenty of time to really check out some amazing archival material on the 3CR website. So I'd really encourage listeners to do that. Um, there was some distressing content in the episode, so um, just to give you that lifeline number again, it's 131114. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. And now we're going to play a new one from Maisha. This one is Made for Silence. You claiming you the king of the castle when I cannot prove you wrong. Then you lose what you have trying to handle that I haven't moved beyond. My anger is not quiet. But I taught it to be still. My hunger is not mild. But I trained it not to kill this mouth to cool on wild. But I've shown it greater skill. My love beats louder still. You talk, they got a mile. Take it, take it, take it all 
message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. A proud black man. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. 
The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Um, up next, um, we are going to be speaking to Lloyd Williams, the National Secretary for the Health Services Union, about the campaign to increase the pay of aged care workers by 25%. Um, good morning, Lloyd. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Monica. How are you? Ah, oh, pretty good. As good as you can for a Thursday morning on lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's so- a very difficult time. Oh, 100%. Um, and I can only imagine what it's like for all our um, people working out and about today, this morning as well. Um, yes. I'll just, I guess I'll just jump right into it. Um, so in November 2020, the Health Services Union launched an action in, in the Fair Work Commission to lift wages of 200,000 aged care workers by 25%. And there was also recent application to add home care workers to this claim. How did this campaign start and what are some of the recent developments? Yes, look, for too long, aged care workers have been overlooked in terms of their wages and uh, and undervalued. And the Health Services Union and our members have really had enough. So that was the... Um, the beginning of the campaign last year when, you know, COVID laid bare the issues, the attraction and retention issues in uh, in our aged care services and, yeah. and that's through, you know, the lack of secure jobs and the lack of decent pay and we know that they are critical to the quality of care and safety of older Australians. Um, so, so we see wages as being a key issue to lift standards in aged care. Mm-hmm. So last year we decided that we'd had enough. Uh, we weren't going to wait for the government to, that's uh, constantly sat on its hands and that we would make an application to, um, to get something done. So we've made the application to lift the minimum rate for aged care workers. Uh, because it does, the current rate, the current reward rate doesn't recognise the nature of their work and mm. their work value and the level of skill and responsibility uh, involved in performing their work. Mm. Um, so our application, if it succeeds, will lift the hourly wage rate from $21.35 to $26.69 per hour. And that, and for the work that our members do, $26.69 per hour is still not a lot of money. Of course. So, so we are lifting wages off a really low base and, um, and it's the same situation for our, for our home care members. So there's yeah. two awards that, that uh, exist in the service, the uh, aged care award and the social community and home care award. So we've made the application in both of those awards. Mm-hmm. And really now it's, um, it's, it's up to government to come forward and to support our call for higher wages. You know, the government should demonstrate their respect and support for the workforce and, uh, and help deliver on this wage increase by, um, by supporting it and agreeing to fund it. Mm. 
Yeah, and Lloyd, I mean, this issue has been in the news for quite a while now uh, because the federal government has said that they're going to be investing $17.7 billion in aged care in response to the Royal Commission into Aged Care. Um, but where is this money actually being allocated? And also, is this funding enough? Yeah, look, we you always welcome uh, extra funding into services that have been historically underfunded. Uh, the issue with the $17.7 billion, whilst welcome, it's nowhere near enough. Uh, it's well below what the Royal Commission recommended. Uh, the Royal Commission said there should be an additional $10 billion delivered uh, per year uh, to deliver real high-quality outcomes. The $17.7 billion that the government has announced is spent over five years. It's backdated uh, one year to include um, the, the previous year. So it's, it's well short. It's less than half of what the Royal Commission uh, recommended. So, and we do have concerns that the majority of this funding doesn't go to, uh, to where it's, um, uh, to, to the needs of the workforce. It's, um, it, it's going to uh, a lot of administrative functions and it's going to create uh, new uh, home care packages. The problem, the problem with it is that you can't roll out home, new home care packages without a high quality workforce to, uh, to provide them. So there's nothing in here that's been allocated to, uh, to workforce measures apart from some money allocated to training. But training alone will not deliver a, uh, the quality workforce that we need. We need to deal with the woefully low wages and the other issues that, uh, um, that impact on uh, attraction and retention of aged care workers into the system, and that's uh, uh, insecure jobs, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the necessity for, for workers with low pay, uh, majority of, being, of, of them are women who have to work multiple jobs to, um, uh, to make a living. So the budget uh, is disappointing in that it doesn't address those key uh, workforce issues and the looming workforce crisis that uh, that is down the road. The government has decided to, to kick the can down the road, announce a lot of home care packages, um, uh, but have done nothing about building a strong and sustainable workforce, which goes to the issues that, um, that we're talking about in terms of... Um, uh, wages and conditions and uh, the Royal Commission has said the same thing in its final report. They've said that uh, that in order to deliver um, uh, a workforce that is responsive to the needs of elder Australians, you need to deal with the pay and the job security and um, and the training issues uh, for uh, for aged care workers. So, so we saw the um, the budget as a uh, uh, whilst the money's always welcome, it was a bit of a slap in the face for uh, for the workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not really widely reported that that $17.7 billion is over five years. So as you say, it's just woefully yes. inadequate. And I know that some of the smaller political parties are really pushing the federal government to lift the wages of aged care workers. Um, what's the federal government's response? I know that they were planning to respond sometime this week. Yes, the federal government has. Um, well, they haven't given us a response at all about the um, about the wage claim. They're, they're 
to respond this week in terms of the provision of uh, of other workforce um, information. But we really need a political commitment from the government and from all major parties, uh, from the Labor Party as well, that you know they will support our application in the Fair Work Commission to lift wages and they will fund it um, because all of our aged care service system is funded by government. Uh, the money has to come from government uh, to support the lifting of wages and the government could... Uh, assist our process and, and quicken the process by um, uh, assertively saying that they support the Fair Work Commission, lifting wages for aged care workers, and they will fund um, uh, uh, the decision to uh, to lift wages. Uh, back in 20, uh, 2012, uh, we had a, a similar situation with the previous Gillard government uh, for community mm. service workers and for the pay equity case. Uh, the government then said that they supported uh, the Fair Work Commission dealing with that matter and would fund the outcome. That dramatically uh, shortened the period of that um, of that case and the, and the federal government should do the same now. They should support our case and they should say that they will fund it. Yeah, yeah. Historically speaking, you do need the government's support to try and push anything through the Fair Work Commission. Um, so yes, all the best. It's a, <laughs> yes, it's a contested process, but it's made a lot easier when you have um, government and employers supporting uh, our proposition that we need to deal with this wage issues for aged care workers. And Lloyd, I'm aware of two class actions currently in Victoria that have been launched by families of residents who died after contracting COVID-19 in aged care facilities. And each of these class actions have been brought on behalf of residents, their family members and staff who have suffered physical injury and or mental injury or nervous shock as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. So there must be many aged care workers who have had to deal with both the stress of complying with policies of their workplaces, which will be coming into question in the class action proceedings, and also the stress of families seeking accountability for the loss of their loved ones. So how important is this campaign to lift the pay of aged care workers in the wake of significant COVID-19 outbreaks at aged care facilities? Yeah, um I, I can't comment on the legal proceedings. However, I can say that many of our members in aged care right across the spectrum of roles uh, have really been traumatised uh, from working throughout the pandemic. The level of burnout and financial angst is, uh, is extraordinarily high. To then have the government overlook the workforce in the budget and refuse to recognise their efforts and value via increasing wages it's very disappointing, albeit you know not surprising. So you know, COVID has highlighted to everyone the importance of aged care workers, the pressures they are under. Um, even pre-COVID, let alone that being ex- uh, exacerbated by the pandemic, and and the reasons as to why they deserve formal recognition and and value through increasing their wages. This. You know, we we can't have a continuing system where critical workers in aged care are are, are being uh, asked to work uh, multiple jobs because of insecure work and on low pay. Um, it, it, it's it's 
It's a recipe for disaster. And as I said earlier, it was laid bare through the pandemic. So, you know, we need to we need to fix wages now. Uh, we need to ensure that um, you know the that workers don't leave the sector. All of the research that that we uh, see is that you know four in ten aged care workers intend to leave the sector over the next five years. We can't have that occurring, and the only way to deal with that is to uh, is to fix the workforce crisis that's. Um, uh, that's currently in place, and and the way to deal with that is to deal with um, low wages, deal with insecure work, and provide better training and career paths for uh, for aged care workers. Um, I'd also like to take the opportunity to raise that it isn't just aged care workers, but also disability workers find themselves in a similar situation where. Um, you know, they are providing care to our most vulnerable uh, under very incredibly uh, uh, stressful conditions. So so they too deserve support and recognition from the government and the HSU is continuing to advocate on uh, under their, uh, on their behalf. Um, but really the, the issues in, in aged care and through the pandemic um, is, you know, fundamentally... Um, the stress point is the workforce issues and uh, many of the things that we saw in private aged care occur um, during the pandemic uh, could have been mitigated had we had a more secure workforce um, uh, and, uh, and that's what we need to do going forward. Mm, it really sounds like there's that intersection between there's a need for higher wages but also just more secure work and less casualization of that workforce. Um, and I guess like care work and support work is typically seen as women's work, which probably speaks to why it is so underpaid and undervalued. And also from our understanding, there's a high proportion of women from migrant backgrounds working in aged care. How do you think this might impact the appeals for this change? Look, insecure work is a huge issue for um, for aged care workers and and all care workers, and um, so secure work, uh, well paid jobs always have a positive impact uh, on individuals and community uh, well being. Um, aged care workers, as I said before, are forced to work across multiple work sites uh, just to eke out a living to have enough income to pay their bills and that shouldn't be necessary. And the majority of um, of aged care workers are women and many, many of those are also from, uh, from, from migrant backgrounds. So we have a convergence of, um, you know, uh, um, undervalued gendered workforce um, uh, migrant uh, women who are also trying to uh, uh, to eke out a, li- uh, a living, and you know they also um, uh, experience uh, language barriers in terms of information that's provided to them around their um, uh, around their their working entitlements and um, and requirements in aged care. So, you know, we um, it, it's it's some of the most physically and emotionally arduous work that someone can do yet. Uh, Yet these workers, uh, mostly women, are doing it for $21 an hour and that has to change. You know, the average aged care worker retires on about 18000 in superannuation, you know, 
Um, those that have been here for a long time may have more, but, uh, you know, these women, these migrant women are, are, are working themselves into poverty and we, um, we have to address that. So mm. the HSU um, is hopeful that if successful, we can lift the wages for um, aged care workers. We can make a difference to migrant workers. We make a difference to all of the... Um, uh, the the fantastic women that are working in our sector because, uh, you know, we know that they deserve it. We just need the government to acknowledge that and to come in behind us and back us to uh, to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely, Lloyd. And um, just finally, can you tell us how listeners can um, get in contact and find out a bit more about this campaign? Uh, yes, uh, we have a um, we have a campaign uh, uh, website. It's called um, uh, Change uh, Age Care, um, and, uh, and and if uh, if people Google Change Age Care, that'll bring up the HSU uh, website uh, campaign website where uh, where people can get involved and uh, and assist us uh, going forward. You know, we know that we have an ageing population. Every one of us will be touched by the aged care system at some point in our lives and we want it to be better. We want to make a difference to uh, to our elder Australians because, uh, you know, they deserve it. Our mums and dads, our, gra- our grandparents, you know, our families, they they deserve a better outcome uh, in, uh, in aged care. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of articles yesterday about the very slow rollout of um, the vaccine for aged care workers. So I really hope things change in that area as well as their pay increase. So thanks so much, Lloyd, for joining us on 3CR this morning. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And just then we spoke with Lloyd Williams, National Secretary of the Health Services Union, about the campaign to increase the pay of aged care workers by 25%. And now we're going to go to a new track from Miss Blanks. This is Fly High. Hey, yo, it's Tony. I can't get to the phone right now, but uh, just leave the name and number and I'll call you back. Hey, it's me. We got some stuff to talk about. You've had me feeling a certain type of way recently and we need a talk. Birds go high in the sky, no other birds tonight. She go right high with a sakia, lyrical saliva, me a fat fini, sensual inside. Be a in the tree so nice, terror from the swing sea pipe. Fantasy is chicken tonight, quick slice, take a back, quite nice, right guy, right, real fine, got my juice so right. I said, hey, how you going, sister? I really wanna see how you treat a sister, cause I'm pretty seeker, nice to meet you. And the way you talk to me is, it's my interest, creep the deeper, make me leaker, I pretty seeker, nice to meet you, cause the destruction, right? She said, I'ma get you high if you wanna ride. 
Let me show you how to file, show you how to fly. Let my nine to five, now stack my money high. And just by my side, now I don't wanna die. She said, I'ma get you high, if you wanna ride. Let me show you how to file, show you how to fly. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 8 in the morning on the 22nd of July, and you just heard Miss Blank's new track, Fly High, which was released yesterday, so very, very fresh, um, and amazing track, makes me really want to be back in the club, so everybody go get vaccinated if you can. Um <laughs> So now we're going to go to an interview with friend of the show, Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues. And Elle is joining us today to talk about the Senate inquiry into the disability support pension and also a bit about the Department of Social Services consultation on the disability, impair, uh, disability support pension impairment table. So, hey, Elle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, as always. Um, absolute pleasure. So uh, there is a current Senate inquiry into the disability support pension by the Senate Standing Committees on Community Affairs, and reporting on this is expected by the end of November this year. Um, submissions have closed, by the way. So, however, the conversation about appropriate and accessible Social Security has obviously been happening for a long time, and you've been engaged in these conversations for, for a long time as well. Um, could you speak to some of the main concerns about the disability support pension as it currently stands and approaches of successive governments to sort of cut welfare spending and push workforce participation for people with disability? Yes. Yeah, so there's um, Senator Rachel Seawitch, you know, who's a friend of those of us on who've been on income support. Um, she has called for a, an inquiry by the community affairs crew in the Senate um, and so this is going to be really interesting, and I really hope that the hearings that I'm sure that they will have will hear from lots of people who are either on the DSP or increasingly can't get on the DSP um, and urgently need that kind of increased income support. So one of the things around the DSP is it really has it, it was intended to recognise the you know that being disabled and sick is expensive. You know, so there are lots of things that. Um, you know, cost lots of money, but also the barriers in society that we can't access mainstream services. So um, it was set up to actually recognise that. But successive governments have made enormous amounts of changes to the eligibility of the DSP. So it now means that so many disabled and sick people can't actually get on the DSP and are stuck on the much lower job seeker rate. Um, and it, but it also now sets up this really hard line between working and not working. And so... The government says that if you can't work at all, you need to be on the DSP, but if you can work even a tiny bit, you must be on the much lower job seeker payment. And that just doesn't recognise that for many disabled people, work is a fluid kind of thing. Like when I was on the DSP, I went on and off and in and out of work for kind of a decade. And when I had when I was well enough to work, I would work, you know, 15, 20 hours a week. And then when I was, got really sick again, I could go back on the DSP. 
Um, and that would not be possible with the current system that we have now, which is just horrendous. So, you know, when, you know, science, you know, did their thing and there was a new medication that meant I got well so that I could work full time, I actually had had a decade where I'd been able to work and study, but that would not have been possible now. Yeah, and I think... I guess like a, a lot of the, the concerns around the disability support pension, um, I mean, especially as we see earlier in the terms of reference in the inquiry, but also about these problems over time, point to eligibility criteria and the the idea of what makes somebody uh, disabled in the eyes of the state and, and then therefore eligible for these kinds of payments. So um, the Department of Social Services is currently conducting a review of the DSP impairment tables, and that is open for contribution for the next nine days. So could you take us through some of the key issues that disability advocates and PEAKs have been raising about barriers to accessing the DSP in the first place, and also this sort of government classification system for disability? Look, it's, you know, um, this is actually something that was brought in by the Labor government uh, and then it has been further tightening by coalition. So this is a kind of bipartisan approach to uh, making it incredibly hard to get on the DSP. So um, the impairment tables review is a really good chance for us to kind of push back and actually raise some of the issues. So now what you have to do is get a certain number of points in one table. So if you've got multiple disabilities or illnesses, they don't count. So it's not cumulative. Um, and so that's one of the big changes that people want to see. So that, you know, if you have multiple illnesses, they kind of count together, which is exactly what it means in real life, rather than, you know, being seen as separate. Um, there's also calls to get rid of something called the program of support, which is just this really cruel, long waiting period of like over 18 months, particularly for younger people with disability. Like I was 25 when I first went on the DSP and so lots and lots of younger people get really sick and the idea that um, people under 35 don't need extra income support is just completely ridiculous. So um, there also needs to be, like people are calling for things like clear instructions for doctors because what they've done is they've got rid of the the form that basically said this is what you need to say for the doctors and so now the government sort of goes oh the doctor didn't say the right things therefore we'll deny you the pension which just seems Kafka-esque in terms of how many barriers there are now to getting on this but there's also really strong calls to raise the rate of the DSP um, particularly to address the cost of housing and for people who are not um, getting NDIS supports so um, there's been quite a lot of push both in the Senate inquiry and now in this impairment table review, you know, to actually recognise that the DSP is actually trapping people in poverty. Yeah, definitely. And there's this there's just so little recognition of the fact that there are massive costs to disabled folks having to navigate an ableist world and, you know, um, ableist housing planning um, feeds into that as well. Uh, but just, you know, the idea that, uh, people who don't have access to the NDIS and also disabled folks who don't have access even to the DSP um, have massive, massive costs associated with just being able to get about in the world and do all the things that they need to do to survive. Exactly. You know, and, you know, we hear all the time, you know, from people, this is like 40% of people who are on Job Seeker are disabled people and sick people, thanks to the succession of changes to the DSP. And like, 
And that's got its own incredibly cruel rules where you can get an exemption from your job seeker, you know, mutual obligation, so-called, requirement um, for being sick, but you can't get more than one certificate for the same disability or illness. And that just seems bizarre, as though your disability or illness is going to suddenly go away because the government said so. So we've got, you know, this, you know, coordinated punishing of disabled and sick people who face enormous barriers to getting work and need a flexible income support system that is actually going to support them to try out work, to test things out, to feel confident that they're not going to lose their housing or not be able to eat or get their medication if they go and actually try a bit of work. It doesn't work out or they get sick again um, and it'd be okay. But we also need to do a whole lot more around reducing the barriers to work for disabled and sick people. So, um, like, currently I work nearly full-time, which is amazing for someone with the level of disability that I have, but I work completely from home. I'm sitting here in my pyjamas. I often do meetings in bed. And I am really lucky to have the kind of work that I can do that is that flexible. Um, and if I don't have access to that level of flexibility, I can't work. Yeah, I think um, this the fact that, as you mentioned, around 40% of people that are on JobSeeker actually do have a disability is, you know, when you think about the level of job search requirements and the nature of quote-unquote mutual obligations, it's clear that, this is completely prohibitive to to people who want to be able to work part time in a way that takes account of of their you know disability and makes sure that they have reasonable accommodations for that. But um, you know this is obviously not what we're seeing when people are being forced uh, to accept really unreasonable working conditions um, through those job search requirements. Yeah, and we're not seeing huge amounts of pushes on employers. To get better, you know, we know that the Disability Discrimination Act, you know, requires individuals to take action and often really stressful court action around discrimination. Um, there is no provision in the Disability Discrimination Act to take systemic action, um, and we're not seeing any kind of, um, you know, measures from the government or any government really to push back on employers about why on earth aren't you hiring disabled people and why are you not you know, doing the reasonable adjustments. I mean, if anything that, you know, all of the last pandemic of the last 18 months has shown that, you know, any idea that there were barriers to work, you know, for people who, who need to work from home, you know, we've been told for years and years and years that this is not possible, not possible, not possible. And then all of a sudden it was actually really possible all Surprise. the way along. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just amazing, you know, to, to see um, just how artificial this um you know this this production of barriers and scarcity is when when it becomes um, during the conditions of the pandemic clearly very possible for people to be able to be accommodated in that way. Um, so finally, um, on the first of July, twenty twenty one, so just at the start of this month, that marks the eight year anniversary of the NDIS, and we've had you on um, a couple of times before to talk about some of the issues uh, with the scheme and how it should be operating for disabled people and accountable to disabled people. Um, so, do you have any reflections on the anniversary and where, uh, how far the NDIS has come, or any comments on that? So many. Um, it's also ten years since the Productivity Commission original disability care uh, big inquiry as well. So it is a good time, I think, to start reflecting on, you know, the original design of the DIS and then what's changed and how we've ended up into such an adversarial system 
that puts disabled people, you know, to be honest, at the bottom of the pile. Um, I think the last year has shown kind of how far apart we are from where the NDIA, the agency that runs the NDIS, thinks, thinks we are, you know. And, you know, there's a huge amount of work that has to be done before they see us as equal partners in making the NDIS work. Um, I was listening to Martin Hoffman, CEO of the NDIS, yesterday at a conference, and someone asked him about, you know, what are you going to do about making the NDIS think of, about um, it being more of an insurance scheme than a welfare scheme? And he was he got extremely indignant and said, oh, no, we don't think of it as a welfare scheme. We, give me some evidence that we do that. And it's like, and you know, disabled people around the country just groaned going you do think of that, this adversarial, you know, making everyone justify and go through hoops to get essential things that they need, that they've already been approved for, you know, and, you know, fighting all the time for, you know, basics like, you know, wheelchairs, home modifications, you know, basics around, you know, the care and support people need is ridiculous. But, um but I do think the NDIS has been really... One of the things we have to always remember when we're talking about the NDIS is it has been utterly life-changing for so many disabled people and their families and, like, completely life-changing. And for many disabled people, like, hundreds and hundreds, over 100,000, it's the first time they've got support in their lives. And this is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, but it's still lots of work to make the NDIS fairer and make sure that it serves the disabled people with the least... Um, you know, people with multiple marginalisations have to be kind of at the centre and the heart of the NDIS instead of at the edge. And, you know, I also want to see way more attention on disability providers. Um, you know, where are their monopolies? Where is market domination happening? Um, stopping the conflicts of interest uh, and the profiteering that's going on. Um, and I also think the NDIS has to start investing in disabled people who don't get those individualised packages. This is part of the original design. Um, but people who need a little bit of support, and at the moment they get nothing. So mm. in many places, the NDIS is it. Like, it's the only place you can get support. And that is part of what is putting pressure, you know, on the NDIS because so many people have to get try and get into the NDIS because there's literally nothing left. Yeah, it is. I mean, seeing the sort of progressive rollback of, of other kinds of support services and the cost cutting in other areas as well as the NDIS is rolled out has been really, you know, appalling to see that people, um, you know, if you're not if you're not in the scheme, um, you then are locked out of a bunch of other different supports that you should have been able to access anyway. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I guess... Uh, to wrap it up, where can people uh, contribute to the consultation into the DSP impairment tables and where can they find your own disability advocacy work? It's time to plug your Patreon. <laughs> so, yeah, so if you're keen to um, contribute around the impairment tables, I'd strongly urge people to do so. So go to just Google DSS Engage, as in Department of Social Services, and then Engage, and it's one of the tiles there. And you, there's a little questionnaire you can do. Um, so please do fill in that. Um, or send an email to them because I think it's really important that they hear from people who are both on the DSP but also particularly from people who can't get on the DSP. Um, and, yes, if you're keen to support, I have started a Patreon. Um, and so it's uh, patreon.com slash lgibbs, E-L-G-I-B-B-S, or it's on my Twitter, so Blunt Shovels. Uh, you can find it from there. And I am writing every week about the NDIS and disability and all sorts of things. So tune in and uh, uh, you can um, get access to that stuff. And for disabled people, if you'd like access to any of the articles, just DM me or email me, and I'm happy to give them to you for free. Awesome. Thanks so much, Elle. Really appreciate your time. Anytime. Thanks, Eats.
And that was Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues, talking about the Senate inquiry into the DSP and the Department of Social Services consultation into the DSP impairment tables. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it has just gone 8.16 in the morning. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. And next up, we're speaking to Kate Kelly, a journalist currently working at the New Daily. Kate is joining us to discuss the paying conditions of fruit pickers and the application by the AWU to the Fair Work Commission for a rise in the award wage for farm workers. Welcome, Kate. Good morning. Good morning. Um, We've all been very excited to have you on the show this morning, me, Priya and Carly, just reminiscing about the days of news headlines as well. Yeah. <laughs> we miss them so much. <laughs> hey, I thought I did good this morning. <laughs> no, Charlie's headlines were pretty good. I'm sure you weren't awake yet, Kate, but they were good. <laughs> I'm sure they were really good. <laughs> um, Kate, just to begin, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you've done a lot of reporting on farm work and the horticultural industry, but mm. when we're talking about farm work, I was just wondering if you could explain um, the kinds of work that is and also who the workers are who are doing that work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really important um, distinction because when I say farm work, what I am specifically talking about is the horticultural industry and picking and packing jobs. Um, So along the Harvest Trail, which runs a little bit through WA, um, through South Australia and up the eastern seaboard where it's most, that's where it's most predominant, um, at certain times in the year there can be up to 120,000 pickers and packers working um, sort of along along the trail on Australian farms. They are, you know, I think 
most of us have an understanding of what happens when you're out picking. It's really hard work. You're often in the sun and you're just going, you're just going gangbusters to get the fruit off the trees. Um, and so then they, that then goes to the sheds and that's where the packers who work in the sheds, they go through and they make sure that the good fruits are what ends up in our supermarkets. So we're talking about those jobs specifically. And that workforce is made up of a lot of different things, actually. First and foremost, I think it's really important to stress that there are lots, there are thousands of locals out doing these jobs. There's a really um, sort of very strong idea that Australians don't go out, um, but they, they most certainly do. There are thousands of Australian workers out on the Harvest Trail. Then there are a huge chunk of them is backpackers. Um, they're doing their 88 days. Their visa requirement is that you have to work 88 days um, out in regional Australia. Most, a lot of them work on um, farms, and they do normally do two stints of that, of that work to be able to stay in the country for longer. And then it's made up of other migrant workers who often get jobs through labour, hire contractors. English is often their second language and the contractor will advertise on social media, so WeChat or Facebook. They look, I've got these jobs and those workers will go out and do them. They are often the less, um, the least protected and most vulnerable workers. And then the last kind of core aspect is the undocumented migrants and there are tens of thousands of them around the country um it's estimated Mm, thank you thank you that was a really um succinct and thorough overview of the, the industry i just was wondering um if you could also talk about, obviously there's been a lot of reporting over a number of years of the poor conditions and poor wages as well as um this idea of piecework um And I was wondering if you could just outline some of the conditions that you've seen in your reporting and also talk about what uh, piecework is and uh, the general wage conditions that people are working under. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In terms of conditions, I mean, I feel like we're all flogging a dead horse. There's, there's There's no other ways to say it is horrible. Um, it is modern slavery. It is happening every single day out on Australian farms. And this is not just my reporting in the last six months that has shown this. It's, it's just a known thing in Australia, right? That like out on our farms, people get treated horribly. And we've had over the last 10 years, we've had report after report after report, pretty much a big annual report once a year comes out about this that says the same thing. It says migrant workers are being treated terribly. Some of them are some of them are legitimate slave-like conditions, and the worse um, or like the better you grasp the English, the less likely you are to be exploited. So the most vulnerable people are get, bearing the brunt of the most the harshest levels of exploitation. And this is not to say it's happening on all farms. I've spoken to people who have been paid hourly rates. This is where the pay discrepancy comes in. People have been paid hourly rates to go out and pick and they're having a great time and they're making decent money. They're making a livable wage. They're happy to be on the harvest trail. But the majority of people get paid um, with what's called peace rates. And the Australian horticulture industry is pretty much the only industry in the country where you don't have to be paid minimum wage. So it is legal under peace rates to pay workers 
Um, the idea is that they're paid for their work output, but what happens is the system is rigged against them. So um, you would, as a worker out on Australian farm, you would be paid, so if you're doing apples for a crate of apples, right, and that might take, that might, one crate might earn you 30 bucks, but the crates might be huge. So uh, you can be working all day and you can walk away with $30. And there's no sort of regulation to, around the size of the crates or the buckets that make sure workers are being paid a livable wage. So often what happens is that it's just completely, like, it's completely unfathomable that anyone could even work that hard or that fast to make decent money. Um, and that's it's all legal. Like I've spoken to workers, like Australian local workers, who are really up with their rights, who have gone out and they've gone to one of those jobs that the government's touted they're going to make, you know, three thousand dollars a week. And as they've walked onto the farm, they've had to sign a contract saying, "I'm okay with getting paid under the minimum wage." And they've walked out with three hundred dollars a week. Mm. You know, so the government's pushing people into these jobs, saying you're going to make thousands and thousands, but the system's completely rigged, and there's absolutely no, and it's absolutely legal. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of, you know, kind of building in that safety net, um, in December 2020, the Australian Workers Union lodged a claim with the Fair Work Commission, which in the last week has um, started to be heard, to amend the award wage for fruit picking. And I suppose um, the idea of this award wage would be to have a safety net, um, not necessarily to get rid of peace rate, peace rates, but just to have a safety net that you can't actually be paid, you know, these really, really low, below minimum wage um, rates. So could you just talk about what's happened so far in that hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you sort of summarised it perfectly. Like, that's exactly what's... So the Australian Workers' Union, they've gone really hard on this. They're arguing over floor underneath, so $20.33 an hour. And then the fresh, the Australian Fresh Produce Alliance, they're arguing that there should be no floor. Essentially, last week, the Fair Work Commission heard from both parties um, about why or why not we should abolish peace rates. Uh, we should, sorry, we should put a floor under peace rates. And now we just wait, really. <laughs> it's just a really long process um, because it, because a change to the award like this would be huge, uh, like it'd be the biggest change that has happened in 15 years, and it's really complicated, and there are a lot of stakeholders and parties invested in it going each way. Um, the Fair Work Commission now sits on it. They've heard, so they've heard the argument, yay and nay. They sit on it. They might call more hearings um, down the track if they want to really nut out a specific part of it. But eventually, we can take up to sort of weeks to months we're looking at, and they just kind of take their time to work out if it needs to be changed or not, and then eventually they come to a decision. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, our listeners should yeah have a read, or maybe we can catch up again about the outcome of that and keep following. We're running low on time, Kate, so we're going to have to um, say goodbye. But thank you so much for joining us this morning. No, thank you so much. And that was Kate Kelly, a journalist at the New Daily, speaking to us about fruit pickers and the AWU's uh, claim to, to the Fair Work Commission to get a minimum wage, award wage for fruit picking work. And that is pretty much all we have time for this morning. Um, maybe we'll just do a quick rundown, Priya? 
Yeah, um, just before that, very, very quickly, um, reminding people to check the Department of Health Victorian government website for restrictions uh, for new exposure sites and to make sure to get tested, get vaccinated if you can. If you are a New South Wales, Victorian or South Australian sex worker in financial need, this is just a plug of the Scarlet Alliance Emergency Relief Fund, which is open to sex workers impacted by the lockdowns. You can apply for the next round by 12 p.m. Tuesday, the 27th of July. Go to link tr.ee forward slash scarlet underscore alliance to apply. Um, So today, first up, you heard um, an excerpt from an episode of Black Gold, which is a series produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio. And this is presented by Viv Malo, celebrating the life of broadcaster Lisa Belair. And you can find more uh, by looking up Black Gold on the 3CR website. Then we spoke with Lloyd Williams, National Secretary of the Health Services Union, about the campaign to increase the pay of aged care workers by 25%. After that, I spoke with Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and writer, and she joined us to talk about the Senate inquiry into the disability support pension and also the consultation onto the disability support pension impairment tables. And finally, we spoke with Kate Kelly, old friend of the show and journalist at the New Daily, talking about the AWU's um, application to the Fair Work Commission for a rise in the award wage for farm workers. So please stay safe, stay well out there, take care of yourselves, and um, hopefully we will be able to pull out of this lockdown by this time next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.